0: There was a very nervous airline passenger who began pacing the terminal when bad weather delayed his flight. During his walk, he came across this vending machine. And he walked over to the machine to discover that it was a life insurance machine. It offered $100,000 in the event of an untimely death. Policy was just 10 bucks. He looked out the window at the threatening clouds and he thought of his family back at home and for that price it was foolish not to buy this coverage so he took out the coverage. He had more time to spare before boarding the plane so he stopped at a Chinese place to eat. He enjoyed a relaxing meal until he opened his fortune cookie and it said, your recent investment will pay big dividends. (laughs) I don't think he was hoping for that right then. Investments, returns on those investments, that's our subject today as we close out our summer sermon series on Follow Me. We'll begin a new sermon series next Sunday in the first letter to the Thessalonians on the theme of vital signs as we look at the signs, the traits of a healthy church. But this morning, we wrap up what has not been easy, an easy study uh, and, and words from Jesus' lips on what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. I could have just as well called this series, Some Hard Sayings of Jesus. For example, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow me must take up his cross. Jesus said that to follow him meant we must be willing to be servant of all. We must love Jesus more than all our other relationships if we're to follow him. We must love others sacrificially. You see, for to follow Jesus on one level is all about self-denial. And certainly our greatest example is what we remembered this morning is Jesus, who willingly gave up his life on the cross in order to be our substitute to pay the price we should have paid. Jesus sacrificed the comforts of heaven to come to a fallen world to live a life of poverty. Christ made sacrifice after sacrifice, and he made the greatest sacrifice of all. And so with that in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be looking, our primary focus is going to be verses 27 through 30, and really, we're zeroing in on Peter's question at the end of verse 27, what then will there be for us? But we must place that question in context. And so I want to look briefly then with with what comes just before the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning. And and what we have in verses 16 through 26 is Jesus' encounter with a young man with a lot of money. And I know Pastor Dan has preached on this passage before and and I've likely referenced it at different times. Uh, And I'm sure it's very familiar to, to, to many of you. So I'm just going to touch on that section, kind of set the table for this morning. Now, you might recall that this young man not only had lots of money, but he also was a man of authority and influence. And really, as he comes to Jesus, we might see it as as he's the perfect seeker and asking Jesus the way to inherit eternal life. I mean, wouldn't we like that question? He seems to come humbly, and very respectful of Jesus. He basically was a good man, at least in his own eyes, but he needed something else in his opinion to get over the hump and get a passing grade to earn his salvation. That was his thinking. What he, what he didn't realize, however, is that inheriting eternal life is not about trusting in our doing, but trusting in what Jesus has already done. And so Jesus, knowing this man's heart, he pokes at his value system. Jesus invited this man to follow him. Uh, You see that in verse 21. He says, um, go sell all your possessions, everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, Jesus' point isn't that you need to sell everything in order to become a true follower of his. But Jesus knows that this man loved his stuff more than he loved God. And the man can't take Jesus up on his offer. He's shattered. He goes away sad. His mind was consumed with matters of wealth. And it stood between being a follower of Jesus and going away empty of Christ. This young, rich guy was a follower, almost. You see, one of the greatest barriers of a wannabe follower is the trap of temporalism. This guy with a lot of stuff lived by the currency, the values of earth, and not the currency, the values of heaven. Now, how do we know what we value? by where we're investing, where we're investing, and Jesus exposes this man's value system, and he uses this as a teachable moment for the disciples, which leads to an astonishing statement, my first heading this morning, astonishing statement, as we get close to what the words we are going to be looking at this morning, but astonishing statement, go back a few verses to verse 23, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, folks, Jesus is speaking hyperbole here. I know some preachers have said that the eye of the needle is some gate with a small opening in Jerusalem. I mean, and it preaches. I mean, you know, you have to get on your knees like a camel does to go through that small opening in the gate. I mean, it preaches. The only problem? There likely is no such gate. This is hyperbole. Exaggeration for effect. He's using a little humor here. It'd be impossible for a large animal like a camel to pass through the eye of a sewing needle. It's just impossible. Possible. And so it is for a rich person to enter heaven. That's what Jesus says. And then it says in verse 25 that when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Now the word astonished means to strike out of one's senses. In other words, they're not just mildly surprised at Jesus' statement, they're stunned by it. This just totally messes with the disciples. They can't get their minds around this one bit. They have no category for this. And they're thinking, based on their understanding of the Old Testament, if you were rich, then that was a sign of God's blessing on your life. And so, he's not seeming to bless this wealthy guy. And this wealthy guy can't get in. And if he can't get in, who can get in? That's why they ask the question, who then can be saved? Jesus answers them. Verse 26, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, we have here the optimism of of grace. By God's power and grace, a camel can go through the eye of a needle. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How does God save sinners? It's a work of God. Not self-effort, self-righteousness are not possible ways to enter the kingdom. And so in other words, while rich people may have special uh, obstacles to come into the kingdom, God can save anyone by his power. That's the wonder of salvation. No one is beyond God's reach. No one. That person we might say, no way, never. With God, it is possible. All right, now that astonishing statement. Sets up what comes next. A very shocking question. A shocking question. Peter has something to say. He usually does. Verse 27. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And I can hear Peter thinking, wait a minute. Did I just say that out loud? (laughs) I mean, it's Peter saying here, the rich young ruler he left, we didn't. You lost this guy, but you got us. We left everything to follow you. Peter draws attention to the sacrifices he has made, and he clues the other disciples in. It's not just about him. He's also about the other disciples. Now listen, they did leave everything to follow Jesus. Some of them left their livelihood to follow Jesus. Some walked away from the family business to follow Jesus. Matthew walked away from his lucrative uh, tax booth to follow Jesus. I mean, it was a big deal what they did. We shouldn't minimize it for a moment. And Peter wants to know, does our sacrifice matter? Is it, is it worth the investment? Is following Jesus worth the trouble? What will there be for us? I mean, it sounds a lot like, what's in it for me? And that's why this questions so shocking. Now, some commentators, and maybe this is where you land to, and some sermons that, that, that I read uh, around this think that Peter is wrong in asking this question, that it is selfish. I mean, it does seem to smack against what we have seen throughout this series. We are to deny ourselves. We ought to be willing to sacrifice it all for Jesus. And so, so some think Peter then, he's out of line here. I think he's unfairly criticized. I think Peter here is connecting the dots. His mind is still stuck on the promise back in verse 21. Sell everything he says to the rich guy and you will have treasure in heaven. Peter's stuck at right? treasure in heaven? He's stuck right there. He wants to know that the sacrifices made will pay great dividends. That what he and the others are investing in is worth it. What do I get out of it? You want to tell me that thought's never entered your mind? And as as we've seen before, it's always handy to have a Peter around. Right? He would dare to ask the question that's on our minds, we're too chicken to ask. But thank you, Peter, for asking it. Thanks for speaking the words we all want to say. What will there be for us? It seems so selfish. I don't believe it was. And I say that in part because of what comes next in Jesus' reply. We see the perplexing answer. The perplexing answer. Peter, who has to jump in and say, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? It's met with a response from Jesus. Look at Jesus' answer. Now You need to follow along here. Verse 28, follow along closely. What does Jesus say in response to Peter? Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. No, doesn't say that. I mean, you would expect it. Jesus to say, Peter, come on now. It isn't about you. What kind of of question is that, Peter? Don't worry about what's in it for you, Peter. Just follow me. No, Jesus does not criticize. He does not rebuke Peter. Instead, Jesus answers, it does matter. There is value in our sacrifice. Look at verse 28. I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what does Jesus mean here by the renewal of all things? Renewal is a fascinating word. It literally means new creation. It only shows up twice in the New Testament. Once, right here, and then um, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, We see the word again. It says he saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Here it is. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. New creation. The moment you become a Christian, you are a new creation. That's the only other time renewal word is used. Other than here. And so when the word renewal is used here, it doesn't make sense that it's speaking of our new birth or what happens in an individual person. It speaks of a time when this new creation will happen throughout the world, the renewal of all things. And no doubt in my mind that it's speaking of the new heaven and the new earth as John described in Revelation 21, verse 1. It's on your screen. Then I saw, John says, I I saw a new heaven, a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I don't know about you, but that excites me a little bit. New heaven, new earth. This present world that causes groaning, downright maddening at times, getting worse, not better, all gone. And a new creation where we, with new bodies, will walk in the presence of a holy God, and we'll see beauty we can scarcely imagine. That this new heaven and new earth that Jesus promises his disciples that they will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel what do the apostles get here we wonder what does it mean that they will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel listen closely I really don't know <laughs> I know, a little disappointing. Neither did anybody else. I have my guesses, and my best guess is that there will be positions of authority in the kingdom. In Revelation 21, 14, it informs us the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. So something's going on there. There's some positions of authority in the kingdom. And what exactly it is, we can only wait and see. Uh, but we won't say when that happens, oh, well, that's not fair. Why do they uh, get to be over me? So what will there be for them? Whatever it is, they will receive something infinitely more than their sacrifices deserve. There is something special in store for Jesus' first disciples. Well, that's great for them, you say. What will there be for us? Well, after speaking of these eternal rewards for these disciples, Jesus goes on to speak of rewards for all those who choose to follow Jesus. Now, I'm sure you've gone to, to, to certain places, and it seems like everywhere now, that someone will ask you, hey, are you part of the rewards program? And I always say Yes but I can say my wife's name and her phone number because she's part of the rewards program, everything out there. I choose not to. But it works, it's great, sure. Advanced Auto Parts? Yeah, I think I am. I mean, Donna Green is. So it works out great, but it's everywhere, right? You got, you got Southwest Airlines, you got Marriott, Irving Gas, Fratello's, uh, Domino's Pizza. Every company has some kinds of rewards program, right? The more you fly, you spend the night, you buy you gas, eat, drink, The more you earn rewards. Well, Jesus offers a rewards program. Works a little differently than the way the world works, but there's a promise of rewards. I don't want us to miss this. Verse 29, and everyone, that means everyone, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now Jesus here moves from the twelve to all those who have made sacrifices for him. Now I want you to notice, however, that the reference is to those who have made sacrifices for his sake. And Mark's account adds to this, and not only says for his sake, but for the sake of the gospel. So, this is not speaking to those who, because of some preference of their own, live as minimalists, or downsize, or live this solitary life, and they deny themselves the conveniences and luxuries in this life. It's not speaking that the reward is for those who have made sacrifices for his sake, and for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Now, the reward here of a hundred times as much should not be taken literally. I mean, who can have a hundred fathers or a hundred mothers? Or a hundred children, that's scary. Some suggest that the reference here to family members is speaking to our spiritual family. That what we may lose in family relationships because of our decision to follow Christ is gained by our sisters and brothers in Christ, our, our mothers and fathers mean our mentors, our children mean those we are mentoring, all those in the church. We gain the family of God that's superior to our family relationships. There, there, there's some truth in that. We are rich because we have spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that how you see the church family? <laughs> well, we may not know the specifics of this reward, but Jesus' point here. No sacrifice will go unnoticed. Every sacrifice for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded richly, hundredfold. That doesn't mean, however, that if I give $10 to some spiritual cause, that I'm going to get back a hundred times as much. I've heard cringeworthy testimonies like that. This is not a foundation for the health and wealth nonsense that's being taught today. It's not. That's not what it's saying. But Jesus' reward program will make up for the sacrifices made. Now, as an important aside, I got to say this too. We should not take these words here, those who have, you know, had to leave family. We should not take these words as justification for neglecting our families for the sake of ministry. We must keep in view, this is all about investments that we make in this life that will outlive us for eternity. And certainly, those with families, we're to invest there first, are we not? We mustn't miss Jesus' point. Every sacrifice for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded. And yet, if we're honest, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? There are times when a sacrifice is made Without a reward, at least in this life. And we have to pray as Jonathan Edwards prayed. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. She may not always see it here. There's two men who own farms side by side, sure shared this before. These two men owned farms side by side. One man was a bitter atheist, the other was a devout Christian. And constantly annoyed at the Christian for his trust in God, the atheist said to him one winter, let's plant our crops as usual this spring. You pray to your God and trust him, and I'll curse God. Then come October, let's see who had the bigger crop. Well, when October came, the atheist was delighted because his crop was larger. See, you fool, he taunted the Christian. What do you have to say for your God now? The Christian farmer replied, well, my God doesn't settle all his accounts in October. (laughs) True. True. So it is with rewards. God doesn't settle all his accounts in this life. And while there are rewards on this side of heaven for sacrificial service, in context, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, the talk is of treasure in heaven. In the end of verse 29, Jesus references our inheritance of eternal life. Inheritance. And so, for those, uh, any of those who have sacrificed for Christ in this life, you've got to know the best is yet to come. There's something so great to come that's in a class by itself. What's to come will be greater than the best blessing in this life. And I believe one of the most rewarding experiences will be when we pass from this life to the next and we see the payoff, the great dividends, for the investments we made while here on this earth. There'll be nothing like it. Now, by the way, this is not a call from everything enjoyable and to deny ourselves any pleasure. That's not what this is about. It's a call to make sacrifices for the greatest cause ever. Investments in eternity. Kingdom investments pay eternal dividends. Kingdom investments pay eternal dividends. To what degree do I believe that? Watch me during the week and, and, and see, does he really believe that? This is challenging. For those who give up what they value on this earth in exchange for what they value in heaven will receive great dividends. There will be great payback. It will be paid back with heaven's currency We cannot expect to be richly rewarded, however, if we haven't really sacrificed anything for Christ. And one of my greatest concerns for Christians in this country is that we really don't have to sacrifice much. Might change, but that's the truth of it for most of my Christian life. We don't need to. It's generally a great deal to be a Christian in this culture. We can gain everything we can grab in this life and have heaven too. Win-win. But church, that is short-sighted. Look at Jesus' final words in this section. The great reversal. Great reversal. Now this verse here, verse 30, often shows up at potlucks, you know, we're getting ready to go in the line. And we say this, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So wait, don't go first in the line. Right? No, 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 I don't think... Potluck was what Jesus had in mind here. In God's economy of things, the generally accepted order of things will be reversed. Those who spend their lives gaining all that they can in this life will only discover in the next life that it amounted to Nothing. And those who have not bought into the values of this world but have spent their lives on serving Christ and storing up treasures in heaven will reap rewards of that. Jesus is speaking here about eternal investments and he's given us his word that there will be rewards for sacrifices made here on this earth for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. And there will be a day when all that we thought was success be turned right upside down. All our earthly gains will mean nothing unless used for Him. And everything we ranked as first will be reversed. Now, there's a strong warning here against being duped by the false values of this world. There's a call here to spend our lives to the more worthwhile values of serving God. And just like the wealthy young ruler, it's all about what we value. What do we value? Well, we answer that by asking the question, how do I spend my time? An older godly man was discussing the future with a young ambitious man. The older man asked this young man about his life. And the young man said, well, you know, I'm going to go learn a trade. The old man asked, and then... Well, then I'm going to set up my business," the young man replied. And the old man asked, "And then? Well, then I'm going to make my fortune," the young man answered assuredly. And the old man asked, "And then? Well, then I'm going to grow old and I'm going to retire. And then? Well, then I suppose that someday I will die," the old godly man asked. And then? We say, I will, I will, I will, I will, and that's not all wrong. Please hear me on that. Not the point of where I'm going this morning. But the Lord, to whom we must give an account, asks, and then, I bought a lot of toys. And then, sure had a lot of fun. And then, I was able to kick back and take it easy while sipping my culotta in the sunshine. And then, you should see how good I am at my golf game. And then, are we living for now or for what is to come? What will there be for us? It's a good question. Listen, rewards is not a dirty word. If we aren't supposed to desire rewards, then Jesus shouldn't have said what he says here. Jesus does not minimize the desire for rewards. The truth is, if anything, he actually increases it. And we see that in other scriptures as well. I'm just going to be able to touch on a couple of them. But in John chapter 12, verse 26, these words just really gripped me. John 12:26, Jesus says, My Father will honor the one who serves me. Let that sink in. Jesus promises me, and he promises you that you will be honored by the Lord himself for serving him. What would there be for us? Honor. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the return of the master who evaluates his servants on the basis of what they did with what they were given. To the one who invested wisely, he received this commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now that's very instructive for us. Be faithful in the little things. A young preacher once approached Dr. F.B. Meyer and asked how he could one day be, become influential. And Dr. Meyer responded, Don't waste your time waiting and longing for large opportunities which may never come, but faithfully handle the little things that are always claiming your attention. And what's the reward for that faithfulness in little things? Hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. The reward is sharing in our Lord's happiness. Well done. To be honored. Rewards. Is it wrong to want that? Is, is, it, is it wrong to, to, always wrong to ask, what do I get out of this? John Piper likens this to an anniversary. Now it resonated, resonated with me, because today marks 40 years for my wife and me. I, thank you. I know what you're thinking, how in the world did Donna do that? (laughs) I get it. But suppose, suppose, I give my wife flowers and I hand them to her and I say, "Hun, these are for you. I'm not enjoying this moment at all. I'm not getting anything out of this. I hope you enjoy the flowers I bought you. (laughs) That's absurd. John Piper calls that dutiful roses. (laughs) It makes me happy to make my wife happy, or my children happy, or others happy. I am blessed when what I do for you blesses you. After all, aren't we supposed to be cheerful givers? Is it wrong to ask, what will there be for us? It'd be like a man or a woman on their wedding day. and They come up to you and he says, you know, I don't actually believe this person will make me happy. I don't expect to receive anything in this marriage. I'm not going to enjoy it. In fact, it probably will make me miserable for the rest of my life, but I'll get married to this person anyway. That's just twisted. You're likely thinking, what's wrong with you, pal? See, it isn't wrong to desire pleasure in getting married. It's not wrong to follow Jesus for what that relationship gives. We should want what Jesus wants to give us. We should long for them. It is not wrong to make sacrifices for his sake in the gospel because you believe in a rewarding God. I don't know what it looks like for you to live out this principle of sacrifice. It's not the same for all of us. you got to work it out. I have to work it out. It might be that you have to sacrifice the career path you're on right now making more money in order to do something for the Lord. Maybe. Maybe. Perhaps it's a sacrifice of some dream job to invest for eternity. Perhaps it's to sacrifice your vacation time to go on a short-term missions trip. Perhaps it's to sacrifice something you want to do and even have a right to do it for something of eternal consequence. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it may be for all of us, it requires each of us to pause again and think about how we are spending our life. And often when we think of sacrifice, we think a big sacrifice made in a moment of, a moment of time. The truth is it's really living a life of little sacrifices. Fred Craddock, in an address to pastors, caught the practical implications of sacrifice. He said, to give my life for Christ appears glorious, he said. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready. Ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. See, we think, he says, giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000, laying it all on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. That we go through life putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents here. We listen to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost. He says, we go to some meeting for a good spiritual cause. We give up a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. And then he says this. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It'd be easy. To go in a flash of glory, it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. How are you spending your life? How am I spending my life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Just all that we've seen and gleaned from in this time together around what it means to follow you. And God, I pray that we're to get a good perspective on followership is to long for that praise from your lips, to long to be honored by you, to long for the rewards. Sure, we have to keep that in the right order, but we can't dismiss it either. So God, speak into our lives about what this looks like as to how we spend our days on this earth. For God, we know that for every loss, you can bring that and turn that into glory. So as we're gonna see now, we rise up and give you praise for how you're doing that now in our lives, but also in looking forward to that day in which all wrongs will be made Right. And every sacrifice made for you will be rewarded accordingly. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.